Um, listen, we are going to be in the, uh, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. So if you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand. We actually should have some people passing that Bible still. Genesis chapter 1, um, I will have, uh, I'll kind of share with you what I'm going to do today. It's going to be a little bit different. Um, I'm very excited for today, so bear with me about my excitement, and I always talk fast, but just especially today. Um, we are starting a series called God Made Known. Last year, we went through the book of 2 Corinthians for like the year. We went through 1 Thessalonians to end the year. Um, we wanted to start off the year just by focusing on God. Who is God? What is he like? What is he doing? What's his character and nature like? I'm very excited for this. God reveals himself to us, and how he reveals himself to us so often is through his attributes. When basically he appears to Moses, and Moses says, show me your glory, God says, I'll let my goodness pass before you. And so often, God reveals himself through his attributes, who he is, his character, his nature. So uh, I'm very excited to just kind of walk through the attributes of God for the next few weeks. And, and then actually, because of this year, I shared this last week, this year for us, we're just focusing on the story of God. Um, the idea is this. I, I think a lot of us tell ourselves different stories or different narratives. We hear a lot of different narratives in the news about life, about what's going on in our world. And the idea is like, what story are you telling yourself? What story are you believing? Uh, what is the narrative above all narratives? What's the meta-narrative? What is the ultimate story? Where's human history going? And so after the series, uh, we're going to go through the Samuels, the Kings, the Chronicles, and I'm just excited to walk through that and just see the story of Jesus in the prophets and the kings. And so I cannot wait to do that. So I'm just excited for the year. I'm just kind of prepping you. Here's what's going on. But here's what we're doing today. Um, every week between now and basically Easter, I want to focus on an attribute of God. And so every week it will be basically be God is dot, dot, dot. God is, God is holy. God is sovereign. God is grace. God is good. We're going to focus on a character or attribute of God. Uh, and some will be attributes that are just singular to him. Some will be called communicable attributes that God shares with us, like God is love, God is merciful, and we have a broken perspective of that. But we offer that. So every week it's going to be God is dot, dot, dot. Here's what I want to do today. Since this series is God made known, I want to talk about God. And I also want to bring up this idea of how do we know there's a God? So today, the title today is simply God is dot, dot, dot. Here's what I mean. Um, I want to explore those questions or objections that maybe you've had, maybe you have, maybe people you work with, maybe your professors throughout life, uh, just the idea of how do we even know there's a God? I mean, how could we know there's a God? How are Christians so confident there's a God? Let me say this. Um, some things I'm going to be sharing today. Today is going to look different. So today is basically this. God is, meaning God exists. There is a God. And then there's, I have two points today. The second point will be God is triune. So when I invoke or say the word God, who am I referring to? What is he like? And how God is a triune God. God is one, but God is triune. And so two points, basically. There is a God, and God is triune. Cool? You guys with me? Yes? All right. Now, stay with me, because the first part will be probably more philosophical, and the second part will get into more scripture and more verses and walk through that argument. Uh, let me just say this. There are some brilliant men and women throughout the last couple thousand years that have pieced together these arguments. Thomas Aquinas, uh, just a famous theologian and philosopher from the 13th century, kind of unpacked this more called the five ways. Uh, Jonathan Edwards did this more. Uh, William Lake Craig in our generation. Even Aristotle, Plato, Socrates actually kind of shared in some of these arguments I'm going to be sharing today. So what I'm trying to get at is this is going to be a little bit more like maybe scholastic or academic, so bear with me. Take notes. Take pictures. Uh, I hope this is something, honestly, you can Maybe refer back to in a year or two to your friends who are like, I don't even know there is a God. And just, the, here's my hope. My hope is in the first part of, of, of God is, that God exists. It's just consider. Consider the fact that there's a supreme, ultimate, all-knowing, all-loving being who is good, who is just, who is gracious. Just consider it. Consider the arguments for it. 
Consider the arguments that have led many atheists to come to believe in the idea of God. Now, obviously, we don't, want, we don't want just you to be a theist. We don't want you just to believe there's a God. We want you to believe that there's a God, and he made himself known through the person of Jesus. So let me just really clear that God, that God is made known to us really through the person of Jesus. And we want you to know Jesus. We want you to believe in Jesus. I'm just going to tell you that we just want you to trust in Jesus. But at the same time, I want to be uh, just honest and kind of say, how do we even know? What are some reasons? What are some arguments? You know, because science can answer a lot of questions, but it can't answer every question. And so I want to kind of get into this. You guys, I guess, ready for this? Yes? All right. So bear with me. A little bit different today. And uh, yeah, uh, it's, been, it's been a fun, refreshing week where my mind's like, okay, it's spinning. So maybe yours will spin with mine today. Um, Genesis chapter 1. Here we go. Ready? Genesis 1.1. Here's our verse for today. In the beginning, God. We'll stop there. All right. <laughs> we have to stop there. It's funny. I almost wish we could teach this two, three hundred years ago where it's like, yes, generally accepted there's a God. Let me say this. The Bible never really uh, gives arguments for God's existence. It just proclaims it, obviously. You know, if you think about it this way, uh, you could view the Bible as an autobiography of God. No one who writes an autobiography is like, let me give you five reasons why it exists. The very fact that there's an autobiography shows, like, okay, they exist. Here's what I'm trying to get at. There's not really a lot of arguments from the Bible about why God exists. You know, people are like, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. Actually, in some ways, you can look at the Bible as a reliable source. There's a lot of things we could talk about that. But here's what I want to get at. I do want to look at just more of some just arguments for God's existence that are these classic arguments. Uh, five really classic arguments for the existence of God. Before I share that, why don't we pray? Why don't we say, God, we need you? At the end of the day, these arguments might not convince anyone. We ultimately need God to reveal himself to you. God's spirit bears witness with our spirit. And we need the, the spirit of God to bear witness to our spirit today. So why don't we just bow our heads, pray, and say, God, would you speak? Would you move? As you guys just bow your head and close your eyes, I want to remind you what the author of Hebrews says. He says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. He says that anyone who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. As we come to God, believe that he is. And he's, he's going to diligently reward those who seek him. So, Father, we just want to come to you. God, you are so good. You are so faithful. There is no one like you, as we just were able to sing and proclaim and worship today. Father, we thank you that you are not distant, that you are not just in heaven, not caring, but God, that you came to us. You revealed yourself to us. You still reveal yourself to us. God, I just ask that your spirit would be at, at work, that we want to love you with our mind today, but at the same time, we just trust God that you're going to love us that you're going you're gonna to present who you are to us. So we just look to you, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. When I was 19, uh, I worked at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa in Southern California, and I have no idea how I got this job. I got this job where 20 hours a week I got to go to different college universities and help build and create kind of Bible studies on campus. Unbelievable opportunity for a 19-year-old. I have no idea why they gave me that job. And so it's a cool job. I got to go to UCI and, and just different universities, different colleges, try to meet with some students on campus who are Christians, build out a Bible study, things like that. Uh, there was one specific uh, Bible college or college I got to go to. It's called Saddleback Community College. Uh, I remember going there. There's like 10 Christians. We started this little club, little Bible study, 
And every week we'd get together, and I would just like, do a little message. We had our Bibles, and you know, every week there was this guy, and I, it was great. They had this guy who was not a believer; he was an atheist, and he was very proud of that. But he would we'd bring our Bibles, and he'd have in his hand the book, The God Delusion. And I just remember this was like his Bible. And it's just funny, maybe you remember this book or heard of this book, The God Delusion. It came out, I think, 2006 or seven. And so this is 2008. This book is like at the peak of just its interest. People talking about it. I feel like YouTube is just coming out around then, and Richard Dawkins, the author, is kind of growing big and famous, and kind of hostile to Christians. Uh, and it's funny just because I would be there like, hey, man, you're more than welcome to come to the studies. But like, I just want to be clear, like, I'm kind of going to be talking to Christians here, but you can be like a fly on the wall. You're more than welcome. But, you know, we'd share these Bible studies and he'd be, I object and, you know, kind of stop. I'm like, okay, let's, it's just an interesting thing. And it kind of just sparked this like, okay, I did take an apologetics class, you know, and I'm like, but I, there's something different when you're like firsthand, like, I really want to know why I believe this. Uh, not just why I believe this. I want to, is there, you know, credible arguments for God's existence? And, and is it truly just, you know, an intellectual problem? Is there something more there behind the surface? And, and again, for him, he like, I love it. We'd have our Bible and then he'd be like searching through the God delusion. I'm like, well, there's a counter argument here. And it's just funny. Uh, and it's funny because if you read that book or are familiar with it, again, there's very just more like hostile in that tone and thought towards Christians. Here's an example. Richard Dawkins says this and about us, and that's, I just want us to kind of understand where they're coming from. He says, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is the belief in spite of, even perhaps because of the lack of evidence. There are many who believe this. There are many who believe, basically, you Christians just check your brain at the door. You just believe this because your parents believe this. There's no credible arguments for this. Uh, you're not really thinking through this uh, logically or consistently or reasonably. Uh, you actually go against science. We, you just are, I can't, you know, it's almost like they're amazed that there's so many people that even believe in the existence of God. Uh, here's what I want to do. As we talk about these arguments for, for God's existence, um, I want to just recommend some, some resources. If you are struggling in the faith, this has been very helpful for me in this last season, and I've been going to use some of the content today, so that's why I want to share this. It's called Can Science Explain Everything uh, by John Lennox. John Lennox is the head chair at the math department in Oxford. Uh, he's a scientist. He's a philosopher. Great guy who has some great arguments. Here's one of his main points. Science is limited. We have to acknowledge that. Science can answer a lot of questions. What the universe is, maybe how the universe works to some extent, but there's some other questions it can't answer on maybe why. They're, they're, or their answer, there is no why, but that is still an answer to why. My point being, and his point being, science has its limits. We have to acknowledge that. There comes a point in time where scientists, and, and different authors say this, Christian and non-Christian, that science, not all scientists make great philosophers, that they, they all fall short in some way. And so I want to kind of explore these arguments for God's existence. Because I, I love this. I was watching a video, and one of the questions to John Lennox was, what is the greatest argument for God's existence? And the, the answer is simply this. Who's asking the question? There's obviously many ways to answer uh, how do we just argue for God's existence. But obviously, there's people coming from different kind of points of view. Maybe brokenness, the problem of evil, suffering. Some of my dear friends who I went to high school with, they became atheists as soon as they graduated high school, and their parents divorced. They went through tragedy or heartbreak, and I don't know if it's just an intellectual reason why they became an atheist. I think there's other reasons involved. So as I share some of these, I don't know if this is the sum, like this is the way to do this, my hope is that we can engage in our mind a little bit today, but don't feel like you have to go straight to these arguments. My, my point being, like, you need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit of God. Of God, is this going to be helpful or hurtful? Is this the right time to share it? Maybe for some it truly is an academic thing, and, and you need to prepare and, and share some of these. Hey, have you considered this? And maybe that will be the route. Maybe it's not the route to take. Are you guys following me? 
So I'm going to share these things with you, and uh, again, stay with me, bear with me, uh, be patient with me, but at the same time, it, it might be helpful, and it might not be. And I want you guys to be able to just consider who it is you're speaking to, when and where, and how, and all that. Yes? Amen? Sound good? All right, so here's, the, again, the, the main thoughts for today. For as we start off this Attributes of God series, I realize there's a burden to say, well, is there a God? So first point is God is. Second point is going to be God is triune. All right? God is. There is a God. God exists. Second point being, now when we say God, what are we invoking? What are we, what are we trying to say? We're saying that there's one God who is triune. So first point, God is. All right, so in the beginning, God. There are classic arguments for God's existence. As I mentioned, here's the first one. We're going to call it this the cosmological argument, the argument from the cosmos. Now, just say it with me so you can kind of practice saying it. Cosmological. 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 The cosmological argument, the argument just from the universe itself. Here's the idea. I'll kind of put up a simple definition. All things in nature depend on something else for their existence, and that the whole cosmos must therefore itself depend on being which exists independently or necessary. I, my hope today is to actually make these things as simple as possible, but at, at the same time to impact them. The idea is every effect has a cause. The universe is an effect, therefore it has a cause. The simple way of putting it is there's, there's not going to be an effect that doesn't have a cause. Every effect must have a cause. It kind of brings up the, the question that people ask, uh, why is there something than nothing at all? Maybe you've kind of heard this. Now, before we, like, put, you know, people object to this, uh, just kind of bear with me in the layout of this. Every effect has a cause. The universe is an effect, so it must have a cause. The way that kind of the universe, or even maybe some will call it reality, the way that the universe or reality has been perceived, there's kind of three main ideas possibly and a couple that are mostly rejected, but how did the universe come to be? Here's kind of the idea. It has always been. The universe has always been. Number two, it created itself. The universe just came into existence. Number three, it was created by something or someone outside of itself. If you're trying to answer, like, why is there something rather than nothing? The idea is either one, it's just always been. Or two, it created itself. Now, let's just kind of break this. No one really believes the first one. It just came into existence. I mean, uh, even Stephen Hawking says no one believes. There really no valid scientist believes that just came into existence. The idea was that the universe at some point in time had a starting point, okay? And if you think about that, astronomy talks about that. There's so many different ways to look at this, but it's in a consensus belief, Christian, non-Christian, atheist, theist, that the universe at some point had uh, a starting point. The second idea was maybe, well, just create itself. Uh, this is just inconsistent with that claim. Obviously, think about that. Nothing doesn't create something, right? Want to just stay with me? As we kind of break this down, it's not like nothing just creates something or nothing just pops into existence. There had to be, again, some sort of starting point. Meaning, matter doesn't just come to be. There's not like a matter, and then matter just created, popped it, like I'm, I'm here. And then I'm going to kind of work. Uh, sometimes, and maybe it's a straw man argument, but the idea is you can think about the claims. If you just have enough time, enough probability and chance, uh, you'll equal everything. It's not really a fair thing. So the idea is, okay, it didn't just create itself. Something or someone had to, outside of it, create it. Maybe something outside of matter. Something outside of just what the physical realm that you and I see. Are you guys with me? A little bit? Yes? Thomas Aquinas called this the uncaused cause or the unmoved mover. Even like Aristotle and Socrates kind of look back at this. There ultimately had to be some sort of beginning. Again, why do we have something rather than nothing at all? I'll put it up here too just so we can kind of break it down. Um, here's kind of a three-step process to this if you're like, I'm not so if I'm sure if I'm with you. Here's the first thought. One. Uh, if there was a time when nothing existed, then nothing would exist now. You with me? If there was a time nothing existed, nothing doesn't create something, then nothing would exist now. 
But two, something exists now. Three, therefore, there was never a time that nothing existed. Here's the point. There had to be a starting point. There had to be someone behind it all or something behind it all. Obviously, for, the, for us, we say this points to God. I, I am bringing this up because I know there's a question that people ask, and they go, okay, Christians, we'll turn the, the question back on you. Who created God? And obviously, our response is no one. God is self-existent. Our response is this. God is spirit. God is outside of this. God didn't have, he doesn't have a starting point like the universe has a starting point. That God is spirit, he's outside of matter, he can therefore create matter. Our idea, obviously, biblically speaking, is where God throughout the scriptures say, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I have no beginning, I have no end. That we, when we say God is, we're saying God is self-existent. Now, why this matters is there has to be some sort of starting point. And we're saying matter is not sufficient. Matter does not just come into being, matter does not create itself. There had to be something eternal outside of that. There has to be something. Another way to put this, you guys with me so far? Here's the six kind of steps I'll put up here. Number one is this, and follow with me. We all agree. We all agree on this. Something exists. One, something exists. You do not get something from nothing. Number three, therefore a necessary and eternal something exists. Something that's eternal. The only two options are an eternal universe and an eternal creator. Science and philosophy have disproven the concept of an eternal universe. Therefore, an eternal creator exists. That's kind of the argument from the, cos the cosmological argument, the argument from the cosmos. There's something here rather than nothing. That something doesn't just come into being. There had to be something behind the something. Ultimately, you keep following that thread, and you can hear different, uh, even scientists or philosophers try to go, well, what was that something? Maybe they go to multiverse theory or the infinite multi-universe theory. They might go into different things, like, well, but there still has to, you follow that thread, and you go, okay, but what was the starting point of it all? There had to be some sort of unmoved mover, uncaused cause, something. So people go, who created God? We go, again, God is spirit. He's outside of matter. That makes more sense to me than there's matters bursting into existence. This is more of, again, a philosophical argument than anything else. And I, I want to point it this way. Um, Lee Strobel, you know, a famous kind of uh, atheist journalist turned Christian, he spoke about the cosmological argument. Here's what he said. He says, essentially, I realize that to stay an atheist, I would have to believe that nothing produces everything. Non-life produces life. Randomness produces fine-tuning. Uh, chaos produces information. Unconsciousness produces consciousness. And non-reason produces reason. Those leaps of faith were simply too big for me to take, especially in light of the affirmative case for God's existence. In other words, in my assessment, the Christian worldview accounted for the totality of the evidence much better than the atheistic worldview. I want to say amen if you agree with that. The idea is that, that we have to consider these things. Science does have limitations. Now, very thankful. We're not, it's not Christianity versus science. Sometimes we, we peg these things against each other, and that's not okay to do. It's not okay to do. But we've got to understand that there's limitations on that. There's a philosophical argument that science does play. They get involved in philosophical arguments, and it's not always a, a, a conversation on science. Again, I point back to the book, Can Science Explain Everything? If you want more on this. It's just so helpful. It's so beautiful. Now, let me bring up this. Maybe you've seen the movie years ago, and I just appreciate this. I was like 18 when it came out. This movie called Expelled, right? And maybe you've heard of this, but there's a movie called Expelled with Ben Stein, and I don't know if you guys, the younger generation wouldn't know, but Ben Stein was like the man. I used to watch a show called Win Ben Stein's Money, just like a genius kind of guy. Anyways, no one knows what I'm talking about. Um, ben Stein, just a really smart man, theist, Jewish background. He's basically exploring the idea of why are all of these college professors who are Christians at universities either maybe being let go, not getting tenure, like what's, what's going on with that? So they make this documentary around that called Expelled. The end of the documentary is Ben Stein sitting down with Richard Dawkins, the one I mentioned who wrote The God Delusion. And basically he asks a series of questions to try to pull out how did the universe begin? 
right? And here's just kind of the quote from the movie and from the context of what they're having the conversation. Here's the, the question, or here's the, yeah, what Ben Stein asks. He says to Richard Dawkins, what do you think is the possibility that intelligent design might turn out to be the answer to some issues in genetics or in evolution? That's like his question, basically. Dawkins' response is this. Well, it could come about in the following way. It could be that at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a, civiliz a civilization evolved, probably by some kind of Darwinian means, probably to a, high, a very high level of technology and a designed form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this planet. Now, um, now that it is a possibility and an intriguing possibility, and I support it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the details of biochemistry or molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of a designer. Here's what I'm pointing out. Here's this atheist going, I will consider everything and anything outside of an omnipotent, all-knowing, all-loving being. I'll consider anything. There might be some sort of design. There might be, you might even see some sort of signature of design. But it's just not God. Maybe it's just an alien force, essentially, that will come and see this planet. My thing is, and if you explore other views of this, it kind of keeps going back to that. That they can't deny that there's really no good explanation for why the universe is even here to begin with. Other than there's some uncaused cause. Is the uncaused cause matter? Mm -mm, that doesn't make sense. The uncaused cause has to be outside of matter. God is spirit. We'd say that is God. Yes? Follow me? Maybe not. We'll keep going. Whew, gosh, here we go. Pray for me, please. Here's the second argument. And it's just helpful. And this is not like I made this up. This is, again, brilliant. I'm very thankful for Jonathan Edwards' work on this. Brilliant men throughout history who just developed this so well. The second argument would be called the teleological argument. It's a tongue teaser one. I had to say it fast. Teleological argument. It's the argument from design. The idea is simply this. If there's design, there's probably a designer. <laughs> not just why is the universe here, but if there's design to this universe and order to this universe, if there's design and order, there might be someone who's orderly. There might be designer to this. Uh, some call this, also, they kind of developed this more, and it's called the anthropic principle, and I'll kind of summarize the de definition of that. Uh, the anthropic principle basically teaches that the universe appears to be fine-tuned. It appears to be fine-tuned for life. There are numerous cosmological constants and parameters whose numerical values must fall within a narrow range of values. If a single variable were off even slightly, we would not exist. I, I think you can understand this. It's like, not only is there a universe, but this universe is so finely tuned. How amazing is that? I mean, it just so happens that we're perfectly 93 million miles away from the sun, that we have a moon the exact distance the way it is, that we have an ozone layer that keeps us, like, safe. And it's, there's so many details that just kind of keep us alive that essentially, like, if I, again, if I truly didn't believe in God, I'd be, like, terrified of everything. I'd be like, oh, my gosh, like, how are we alive? Like, we're floating through the universe. Like, it's just crazy. But you think about how everything's so fine-tuned, you go, wow, it's unbelievable. It's, it appears to have design. Why? Because it has design. You know, and there's a lot of arguments and responses to this, but again, just hear out the argument. If the universe appears to have design, maybe it's because it does have design. The idea kind of goes like this. Um, if there's order in this universe that we all agree upon, and scientists do agree upon just the different laws of nature, how does chaos, in a sense, essentially produce order? How does randomness and chance produce order? How do we see these things? How can we even trust our mind if it's produced by chaos? How can we even trust the mind to even reason? It's, it's, so the idea is order must produce order. Design must, pr must produce design. I truly think this is a beautiful argument. If, you know, if you just do look at like, how the world works in a sense, like where we are in the universe, like how it's so perfectly placed that life can exist, you'd go, it, must, it appears to be that there might be some sort of design to this. Um, here's a few uh, examples I'll just put up here, and this might be more helpful. Earth's atmosphere, right? For example, if there were too much of just one of the many gases, you know, we're 79% nitrogen, 20% oxygen, 1% various gases, which make up our atmosphere, our planet would uh, suffer a, a runaway greenhouse effect. On the other hand, if there was not enough of these gases, life on this planet would be devastated by cosmic radiation. 
Just kind of stay with it. This is random. The Earth's reflectivity. I thought this was interesting. The total amount of light reflected off the planet versus the total amount of light absorbed. If Earth's, I'm not going to say it, uh, were much greater than it is now, we would experience runaway freezing. If it were much less than it is, we would experience a runaway greenhouse effect. Okay, how is that? How do we, how do we, how do we kind of go, man, it just, it's so perfectly tuned this way? Another thought. Earth's magnetic field. If it were much weaker, our magnetic field, our planet would be devastated by cosmic radiation. If it were much stronger, we'd be devastated by severe electromagnetic storms. Keep going. Earth's place in the solar system. If we were much further from the sun, our planet, wa- planet's water would freeze. If we were much closer, it would boil. This is just one of the numerous examples how uh, our previous place in the solar system allows for life on Earth. And it goes on. Our solar system's place in the galaxy, the color of the sun. I mean, we go on and on and on. You go, how? Like, how? Why does it appear to have, to just be finely tuned in details that life can not just exist but prosper but thrive? Maybe we see a design because there is a designer. You know, some people have tried to show, and I forget, it's like one, to the, I forget how the, the math of it works, one to the 10th of 120 zeros out. Like, the probability that life is here is unbelievable. Unbelievable. That we're, we're just so fine-tuned this way. Maybe you've heard these kind of illustrations or examples, but imagine you had an infinite amount of tornadoes, just infinite amount, over an infinite amount of time. Give enough time, give enough tornadoes, but it's going through a junkyard. The tornadoes are swirling and swirling and swirling. And just infinite amount of time, infinite amount of t- t- tornadoes, how likely would it be if it goes through a junkyard, give enough time, that it just puts together a working 747 airplane and actually it fueled it as well, where it can like, take off. Like, the idea is like, you think about just the chaos of tornadoes forever going and going and putting together something beautiful that can work, that's filled with gas, that can fly. The idea is look at our, our universe, look at life itself. Look at how we have everything that we need for life to keep going and maintain. How do you, how, again, it's like one times 10 to the 120 zeros. After, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable to think like how this universe is just so finely tuned. William Lane Craig, a great philosopher, says it, says it this way. The universe appears, in fact, to have been incredibly fine-tuned from the moment of its inception for the production of intelligent life on Earth at this point in cosmic history. Listen. In the various fields of physics and astronomics, astrophysics, classical cosmology, quantum mechanics, and biochemistry, various discoveries have repeatedly disclosed that the existence of intelligent carbon-based life on Earth at this time depends on a delicate balance of physical and cosmological quantities, such that were any one of these quantities to be slightly altered, the balance would be destroyed and life would not exist. It appears to be finely tuned because it is finely tuned. It appears to have design because it has design. It appears to have order because it has order. It comes from someone, a god who's a god of order. I do think this is worth considering. Again, do these prove God's existence? No, these are arguments for the existence of God. Just consider this. Consider that, obviously, this, there's design in order to this. Here's one guy. His name's uh, Alan Sandage. He's considered the father of modern astronomy. Here's a guy who is not a Christian, who didn't grow up a Christian, and later, I think he's in his 50s, He's considered like a modern, I think he passed away in 2010. He's considered the father of modern-day astronomy. He found some amazing things. He began to believe that there has to be a designer behind this design. Here's what he said. Guy who's an agnostic became a believer. He says, I find it quite improbable that such order came out of chaos. There has to be some organizing principle. God to me is a mystery, but is the explanation for the miracle of existence. Why there is something, again, instead of nothing. Are you with me so far? This has happened time and time again, where atheists or agnostics go, I just, as I study the universe, it doesn't grow me confident in my atheism or agnosticism. It actually grows me confident in theism, because I see order, I see design, and it's led many people to the faith. One philosopher from Notre Dame, I love what he says about this, and just bear with me. He goes, if chaos produces order, basically, we cannot trust our mind. Here's what he says. If Dawkins is right, that we are the product of mindless, unguided natural processes, 
then he has given a strong reason to doubt the reliability of human cognitive faculties and therefore inevitably to, to doubt the validity of any belief that they produce, including Dawkins' own science and his atheism. His biology and his belief in naturalism would therefore appear to be at war with each other in a conflict that has nothing at all to do with God. I love that. Why can we even trust our reasoning and our skills in that way if it has no design, no order, if it's just chaotic? If it comes from chaos, it's probably going to think chaotically. We can't even trust our own reasoning then. But why do we trust our reasoning? Because there's a reason behind that. The reason being an all-reasonable God. Just love some of these thoughts. Maybe you're with me, maybe you're not. We're going to keep going. You guys ready? Yes? Okay. Number three. And again, these are not perfect, but I think it's just saying, hey, consider this. It's saying, hey, why don't you just, why don't you just consider these arguments? These arguments that turn many scientists, many atheists into believers. One of the arguments is called the ontological argument. This might be the argument from reason or the argument from conscious. But the ontological, I'll make this summarize it a little bit more. It's, not, it's probably one of my least favorite, but if you kind of explore it in a deep way, it's, it's kind of brilliant, but I'll try to do my best to explain it. The ontological argument is essentially, um, think about this, why do we see in every culture, civilization, primitive or intellectual, why do we see some idea of God? Why is there some belief, no matter who you go to, what people group you go to, even though it might be dominated by some philosophy now, but why do you see at some point in time in their history this idea that there might be a God? And there might be some sort of supreme being. Meaning, here's the question, because people try to display our Christian faith as like, hey, there's no difference between believing in God and believing in Santa. Maybe you've heard like, if I told you there's some spaghetti monster in the sky, you can't prove that wrong, so maybe there's a spaghetti monster in the sky. Well, here's the idea. Who has come to believe in the spaghetti monster in their adulthood? No one. Who has come to believe in a tooth fairy in their adulthood? No one. Who has come to believe in Santa in their adulthood? By the way, there's no Santa. Uh, who has come to believe in Santa in their adulthood? No one. But why do we see people coming to the idea of believing in God in their adulthood? The idea is, why does there seem to be the shared common belief among so many people? Uh, one way to put it, I like this phrase, In inanimate matter and energy do not exhibit intelligence or purpose. If we're just matter, and there's really no reason, no purpose, no, no drive, no meaning, we create our own meaning, why would inanimate matter and energy, uh, why would they exhibit some intelligence or purpose? If it's just matter, we, should, we shouldn't exhibit these kind of beliefs or behaviors or ideas or thoughts. Um, one way of putting it is there's a universal search for God. What, what is that? Why is that? Why is there this universal search for God? And you can develop this more, but that is essentially the, just consider that. Here's the fourth argument we'd use. The anthropological argument. And this is the argument from just morality. And I really do think this is a phenomenal argument, if you consider it. The idea is obviously we agree, and I may kind of unpack this, but we agree essentially maybe there's good and evil. Maybe we disagree on a lot of those different topics. It's interesting if you kind of take the anthropological argument to its ends where it's like, why does every culture kind of and civilization agree that greed, uh, there's vices and there's virtues. There's vices and virtues. Why do some think that the, uh, greed is a vice and self-sacrifice is a virtue? Why are these common beliefs? You can start kind of at that level of vices and virtues where even if we might disagree on some morality, there is a similar agreement upon a vice and a virtue, what that might look like. But to develop this more, um, their idea is, again, how is there, object, or is there objective morality? And if you say there's no objective morality, we have an issue. So kind of bear with me as I put this up here. Here's the idea of the anthropological argument. Number one is this. If God does not exist, you guys with me? God does not exist. Objective moral values and duties do not exist. If God does not exist, there's no objective morals. We just make them up. We make up what is good and right or wrong. And I want to unpack this more why that really matters. Number two objective morals and duties do exist. We would agree that there is evil. We recognize and agree there is evil. So, conclusion, God exists. Now, if you're like, wait, keep this up here. Stay with me. We would, for the most part, say, hey, was the Holocaust pure evil? Yes. 
If you say no, there's probably an issue, right? Or let's just kind of unpack it in, in this way. If, if morality is only subjective and not objective, then who are we to go around to any people or people group and try to put our, uh, our more subjective morality on them? So if a culture embraces slavery and says, this is good, slavery is good, and if we were to say, hey, slavery is not good, that is evil, that is wrong, again, if there's no objective morality, who are you to put, put your moral beliefs on me or this culture trying to change it? And, uh, if, or if, you, if human trafficking was evil, we said human trafficking is evil. They're like, no, no, but it's culturally accepted. It's accepted. Don't project, don't put your morality on me. The idea is we have to be all like in the core. If you kind of explore in your heart, in the heart of your heart, we realize there has to be objective morality. If there's good, there must be evil. If there's evil, there must be good. And, and we have to realize that like, we do agree upon some of these things. You know, and it's, it's just so interesting to me when you, when you take people who, you know, we live in a really unique generation where I feel like relativism in the 90s kind of spurred out to what we're seeing today and, and it played out in different ways. But again, what we say is what's true for you may not be true for me. And it's like, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that there's some cultures and civilizations that, for example, I've shared this story in the past, but in a certain, my friend who's a pastor and spends much time in India, their culture might accept um, worshiping their gods by having sex with underage girls. Okay, we would say that is evil. We'd say that is wrong. And say, hey, but that's their culture. They accept that. That's acceptable. Don't you dare go in that culture and tell them they're wrong. How dare you think you have some high moral platform? No. But like, then there's this heart, this heart with this. Goes, no, we must stop people being abused or used or taken like, advantage of in some capacity. What is that? Why do we say, I don't care if it's accepted amongst them. This has to stop. Because we say there's objective morality. So stay with me again. The, the thought, if God does not exist, objective morals and values, they don't exist either. We just make them up. But we do agree that there's objective moral values and duties at the core of what we think. Conclusion, if there's something objective like that, we'd say that it's God. God must exist. It can't just be subjective. It can't. Or we'll put it this way. Um, one author says, you, obviously, you cannot invoke a moral law without a moral lawgiver. So another way for us to unpack this, just stay with me, if there is evil, there must be good. If someone says that's wrong, you're assuming there's right. So if there's evil and good, if there's evil and good, there must be some sort of moral law to judge between the good and the evil. If there's a moral law, there's someone who gives that law. There's a moral lawgiver. Obviously, for the theist, this points to God. Keep those four points up here for a second. I know you're saying, but that last part is right. Sure, for the theist, this points to God. Here's the thought. If there's good and evil, and there's moral law, and we say this is good, this is evil, there's a moral law, so therefore there's a moral law giver. If that moral law giver is us, we see what's happened throughout history. Some view this as good, some view this as evil, that's not really turned out well. The point is that there's some sort of moral law, there's a moral law giver, um, we better hope it's not humanity. We better hope it's not us. We hope that it's something outside of us that we can agree upon that has been revealed to us, and that is God. You see, I actually, I'm gonna get sidetracked now. Can I do that? Sorry, gosh. Um, if there's a God, which I obviously believe there is, we would never discover this God. God would have to reveal himself to us. You understand the Christian faith is really based off revelation, the revelation of God revealing himself to us. God's like, let me tell you who I am, let me tell you what I'm like. And if you think that there's a God, or there's a possibility there's a God, but we can't just know him, what if God so chooses to make himself known? And our God, we would say, chose to make himself known. We have to understand how important this is, that some worldview, whether you say, maybe there's a God, maybe there's an intelligent being, but God would never reveal himself. Well, how do you know that? How do you know that there's a God and some intelligent being who'd never reveal himself? What if he's omnibenevolent? What if he's really good? What if he wants to reveal himself? Of course he could. The idea, and, and maybe you've heard this story, and I, I think it's just fascinating. I'm going to have to back up a second. But um, maybe you heard the story of, you know, 
America was in the kind of the, the great um, uh, I don't know, space race with Russia in the 1950s and 60s. And if you remember, like Russia actually made it to outer space before us. And Yuri, something, uh, the astronaut who made it there before us, here's what he said. He says, I looked and looked, but I didn't see God. He was famously quoted for saying that when he's in outer space. I looked and looked, I didn't see God. There was this thought that if there's a God, I could, we can find him. That is a weird thought. It's a weird thought to think if there's a God, I found him, there he is. No, if there's a God, he'd have to reveal himself. C.S. Lewis, who was alive during this time and heard Yuri say this, he wrote an article, a short article called The CNI, and here's his response. So good, I just had to read this. He says, the Russians, I'm told, report that they have not found God in outer space. Looking for God, or heaven, by exploring space is like reading or seeing all Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you will find Shakespeare as one of the characters or Stratford as one of the places. Shakespeare is in one sense present at every moment in every play, but he's never present in the same way as Falstaff or Lady Macbeth, nor is he diffused the play like a gas. I, have never ex- I, I never had the experience of looking for God. It was the other way around. He was the hunter, or so it seemed to me, and I was the deer. Space travel really has nothing to do with the matter. To some, God is discoverable everywhere. To others, nowhere. Those who do not find him on earth are unlikely to find him in space. The thing, the thing that we must consider is that if there's a God, he would have to reveal himself. And we do believe he revealed himself. We believe there's objective morality because where God says, hey, let me tell you what is morally acceptable, what is morally not acceptable. If it's left to us, we, we see what happens when it's left to us. There must be something outside of us, is really the argument. I, sh- I say all this because it was so cool. I think it's like the 2000s this came out. But there's a philosopher, I think in his late 70s or early 80s, who was just an atheist for many years. He taught the likes of Christopher Hitchens or, or Dawkins and kind of led to their beliefs. And his name was Anthony Flew. Maybe you've heard of Anthony Flew. But it's so cool because in his 70s and 80s, he was actually, and I feel like this is humility in some ways, he was actually able to say, you know what, I've been debating for years with theists, and I just can't get around it anymore. These arguments still haunt me, and he became a theist. He didn't become a believer in Jesus, but I want you to hear what he said. All right, here's Anthony Flew, famous, well-known, educated atheist in the UK who taught some of the most brilliant people of our day, who also became atheists, but then he converted to theism. Anthony Flew says this, by the way, his book was called There Is a God. I love it. If you see it, there's like a cross out now and put A. Anyways, um, he says, I now believe that the universe was brought into existence by an infinite intelligence. I believe that this universe, universe's in intricate laws manifest what scientists have called the mind of God. I believe, listen, I believe that life and reproduction originate in a divine source. Why do I believe this? Given that I expounded and defended atheism for more than half a century, the short answer is this. This is the world picture, as I see it, that he has emerged from modern science. Science spotlights three dimensions of nature that point to God. The first is the fact that nature obeys laws. The second is the dimension of life, of intelligently organized and purpose-driven beings, which arose from matter. The third is the very existence of nature, but it is not science alone that has guided me. He goes, I have also been helped by renewed study of the classical philosophical arguments. I must stress that my discovery of the divine has processed an unpure, on a, a purely natural level, level without any reference to supernatural phenomena. It has been an exercise in what is traditionally called the natural theology in, in short. My discovery of the divine has been a pilgrimage of reason and not of faith. 
I'm trying to say that these arguments, the cosmological, the teleological, the ontological, he's saying, you know what, they've actually stuck with me. That this was not just like someone, that some spiritual phenomena happened, but I, through reason, came to believe this. My point, though, is many people act like Christianity is not reasonable. Many people act like this is just for people who don't think, who don't really know anything about science. They just neglect all of that. And he's basically saying, no, like, I can't, through reason, I've come to believe in, that, in theism, that there must be a God. Now, sadly, he doesn't believe in Jesus, even though he says some good things about Christianity towards the end of his life. But this journey of these arguments led him to believe in a God, which is still not enough. So out of all these arguments, the moral argument, the argument from reason, the argument from the cosmos, all these arguments, the greatest argument, right, number five, the greatest argument you have, you and I have for God's existence is, is Jesus. Jesus is the greatest argument you and I have for God. The person of Jesus who so influenced the world, who so shook the world, who through humility and sacrifice became the greatest known historical figure, not just to Christians, to the world, that people from every culture, civilization, tribe, part of the planet follow to this day. Why? Maybe Jesus is God. Obviously, I believe he is God. My point is we need to consider Jesus. We need to consider his words, his works, how he lived. We need to consider his claims that he made. My thing is, if you want to believe in the existence of God, study Jesus. Who is this man that, that just shook the world? Who is this man that turned the world upside down? Who is this man through love and sacrifice and humility won people? Not through power, not through, not through strong-arming someone, but through love and grace. Who is this Jesus? The Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, at the very heart and core of Christianity is not just philosophical arguments and not the laws of nature. The heart of Christianity is a cross. And it's a God who says, I love you so much, I will become one of you. I will suffer alongside with you and for you. I will give my life for you. I'm not immune to suffering. I'm not immune to pain. I'm not immune to death. I'll experience all those things for you. You see, I think even just the incarnation of Jesus is one of the greatest arguments. I think that if there is a God and he's just in heaven and never knows what it's like to be among us, what kind of God is he? But actually, there is a God who walked among us and does know what it's like, and his name is Jesus. So we must consider this person, Jesus, who changed the world. We must. I would say the argument for the resurrection of Jesus, this historical event that took place where Jesus died on a wooden cross and three days later walked out and 500 men saw him and they gave their lives and their kids gave their lives for him. And yes, people die for lies all the time, but not for a lie they know is true. We must consider Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus for being one of the greatest arguments for God's existence. We must consider that. I would say for your friends who are like, no, we must consider Jesus. Amen? I believe the greatest argument. So here's the thing. We could go through a lot. We could talk through it in an intellectual, academic way, in a philosophical way, but sometimes that's not, that's not going to satisfy anyone. They're just going to try to go, how can, I de- how, how can I now kind of defend what I believe in more? It's not necessarily going to help. Maybe it will. And people really should consider. It has worked. Like, my point is these arguments have worked and led to theism, but theism's not enough. Theism's not enough, Jesus. Jesus is enough, and Jesus is what we want people to get to, not just there's a God. You guys with me? So here's the last point when I talk about Jesus. Second point overall is this. God is. God exists. There is a God. And this God is triune. So the second point is to stay with me, triune. This is so important. I realized as I was like, okay, we're going to do a series on the attributes of God. I need to talk about God. <laughs> like, right? Like, God is triune. There is one God who eternally exists in three persons. And we need to talk about this God. It's not just fair for me to say the attributes of God and talk like assume. I, I might invoke or say the word God. And you're like, well, okay. A lot of people have this idea of God. Who is God? And so we need to find God. And, and I love the Bible's like revelation of God because it's like it's sometimes it's, it's a progressive revelation of God, which is so beautiful. Because look at, again, Genesis 1-1. What does it say? In the beginning, God. What does that say? In the beginning, Elohim. 
Now, once you kind of see the context of Scripture, you go, okay, Elohim, I, I get that, the name, the title for God. But you got to understand, like, if you're just starting off with this, you go, in the beginning, Elohim. You're like, okay. Here's the thing. Elohim is used a lot of different places in the Bible. Now, I want you guys to stay with me. It's used a lot of different places in the Bible. It's actually referred to as different spiritual beings or deities. It's referred to little g-gods we might use. Actually, Elohim is used to describe, like, a spiritual deity of some sort. It says Elohim appeared to, to Saul when he wanted this vision that was like a demonic spirit. Elohim did. Was that God? No. It was not the Elohim as we know it. We worship Yahweh Elohim. The point being that this idea of in the beginning God, your, people might read that in Genesis 1 and just stay with me and go, okay, what God? Which God? Elohim. What, how does that work? It's also Genesis 2.5 where it says Yahweh Elohim and we clarify what covenantal God. Oh, Yahweh Elohim. The God of Abraham. The God of Isaac. The God of Jacob. The, this God. The God who revealed himself as Yahweh Elohim. Here's what I'm trying to get at. This word Elohim truly is a fascinating word, and you might know this. It's just very interesting. It's one, but it's also like a plural word. Some might call it the majestic plural, or like if the queen's like, we are not pleased with you. I don't know. I'm just trying to think of something. But like we, it's like, well, obviously you're like you, but we, what's the sweet? Elohim is this majestic plural. It's one, and yet multiple. It's, like, it's a struggle for a lot of people. Basically, Genesis 1-1 begins with like ambiguity to God, okay? In the beginning, Elohim. God or gods, spiritual deities. It's like, okay, what does that mean? So what are you implying? Stay with me. The idea is this. Elohim, the I am suffix in Hebrew, indicates the plural form. Just the I am, the him, the him. The singular form of Elohim is probably a loa or maybe even El. So why doesn't it say in the beginning El? In the beginning Eloah? It says, no, in the beginning God, Elohim. You know, what's really interesting is if you play this out throughout, again, like I said, the revelation of God is progressive. There's a progressive revelation of God. If you read in, De- in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, I'll like, put it somewhat in the Hebrew and English, like, kind of mix it, back, mix it back and forth. It says, Yahweh, listen, Deuteronomy 10, 17, Yahweh is your Elohim. He is Elohim of Elohim. And the Lord of Lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome one. It, it would read the God of gods, the God of gods, Elohim of Elohim. He's the God of gods. It's this plural singular word. Do we worship three gods? No, we worship one God. We've got to be really clear. It's the great Shema. It's, Hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord of God is one. Yahweh, Elohim, one. It's God. It's this idea of we worship one God. It's so beautiful that we see, even from this, the first sentence, that God is one, and yet we see multiple. There's really no good explanation, and I, I like struggle with this. And maybe you're like, just help me understand the Trinity. I want you to help me. Like, there's such a beauty, and here's the idea. As we talk about the attributes of God, we're saying, hey, finite minds, let's try to comprehend the infinite. We are going to be limited. My finite mind, trying to understand an infinite God. Francis Chan in the book, uh, Crazy Love, talks about, imagine you have a cup and you have the ocean. The cup is your brain. The ocean is God. You're like, scoop up the ocean. I have God. You're like, okay, there's like a lot more ocean left. <laughs> right? Like, we're trying to take the infinite God and, and put it in our finite mind. There's going to be some difficulties there. And, and in a sense, that's what makes God beautiful. That was, that's, what, that's what makes him worthy of worship. That's what makes him different, set apart. But we just see from the very beginning, God's like, let me tell you who I am. I'm Elohim. You'll see that word a couple hundred times in the Old Testament. Referred to one, multiple, spiritual deities. But I'm Yahweh Elohim. I'm the God of gods. I'm the one true God. I'm one, there's one God who eternally exists in three persons. And we see references of this throughout the scriptures, of whether it's Genesis 1 where he says, let us make man in our image. I do believe that's referring to the Trinity. I don't believe that's referring to the angels. or I, I just believe that's God. Like, hey, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, let's make man in our image. I think we see this in Isaiah 6, where God says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? I think we see references to this in the Old Testament. Obviously, you know, modern-day Orthodox Jews don't believe in the Trinity. Muslims don't believe in the Trinity. When you look at, like, kind of the idea of the Trinity, we'd say, like, this is kind of, like, might be scandalous to some. But we cannot deny the fact that Elohim, God, this plural singular word, 
kind of opens the door to, uh, well, who is God? What is he like? And why do we see this one being worshipped, the Messiah being worshipped? The Messiah not just having the Messiah-like qualities or characteristics, but actually being worshipped. Only God should be worshipped. What is that? And you just see just this progressive revelation of God. And, and my thing is, you know, August, uh, St. Augustine said, uh, you know, maybe you've heard this. He goes, if you don't believe in the Trinity, you will lose your soul. Uh, but if you try to understand it, you will lose your mind. I think there's a reality to that. Like, there's a reality to like, okay, what's going on here? I think what's so important and so beautiful about this is as, I talk, as we talk with attributes of God, of God is good, God is gracious, God is loving, God is sovereign. God is omni. He's just all. He's all everything. We'll get into that. As we kind of dive into this, you realize this is not just limited to God the Father, God the Son, God the Son. It's all and yet distinct. It's beautiful. So can I tell you, love existed before there was us. Who did God love? God is love. Elohim is love. There's perfect love, friendship, joy between the Godhead. It's so beautiful if you think about it. it is, it's, you see kind of this different interaction between the Trinity and us, whether, whether it's salvation whether it's how the Father planned it, the Son executed, the Spirit applies it in Ephesians 1. The Father plans salvation, the Son carries out the plan of redemption, the Holy Spirit applies salvation. You just see them working perfectly and beautifully. There's some sort of order, which we, I fully don't get, but 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this order, and yet there's equality there. It's just so beautiful. As we talk about the Trinity, and as we talk about the attributes of God, i got to say God is. There is a God. We just unpack that. But not just there's a God, but this God is triune. And, and how he works and how he moves. He's just God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit, but they're all God. But there's one God. And there's a side where my brain does get lost too. You're like, but Josiah, one plus one plus one is three. It's like, yes, I know. One times one times one is one. I don't know. Like, it's like, just such a bizarre, like, okay, like, we just gotta process this as the scriptures process it. And there's a sense, again, of beauty and worship. If we just try to understand it intellectually and not worship throughout it, I think we're gonna miss the point as well. If it doesn't lead us to, God, you're God. Elohim, you're the God of gods. You're, you're the Yahweh Elohim. You're the God of all gods. I, I worship you. I come to you. The God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. God made known to the person of Jesus. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And the people rocks, we've got to kill that guy. He just claimed to be God. Yeah. I am the father of one. Huh? How dare you? There's these claims from Jesus. We've got to consider this. We've got to look at this. And it should lead us to this place of worship. It's a beautiful thing. One more thing uh, with this. Uh, I love the, uh, how Arthur Pink puts it. He says, in the beginning, God, Arthur Pink, there was nothing, no one, but God. And that not for a day, a year, or an age, but from everlasting. During a past eternity, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, and needed nothing. It's bizarre how people are like, oh, you know, God just has a giant ego, created us, we worship. There's, he didn't need that. Self-sufficient, self-sustained, self-loved. It's beautiful when you see the church go, and God is community. God is trinity. Tri, uni, three, uni, this is God is unity. But the church is a community. And you, if you look at this, like, I think we're most like God when we're actively loving, serving, giving, celebrating. When you see the church being this community centered on the person of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, giving praise to God the Father, when you see that the, the church's function, like it should, should, it's like this reflection of made in God's image is happening. Man and woman are made in the image of God too, but yet made in the image of God. Multiple, but yet one. And I just love this idea from the very beginning. It's unbelievable. You see this with Jesus' baptism. You see the Father appear and say, this is my beloved Son. You see this voice from heaven. The Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. You see three persons of the Trinity all at one moment. And yet, there's one God. And this is truly one of those great mysteries where even Jesus, when he says, hey, you know, go out and preach the gospel, who I am, what I've done. And here's the part of the gospel, baptize. Baptize what? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you look at that truly in the Greek, it's weird. It's like, in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not in the names. We don't baptize in the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but in the name. We have to, in the name of God, the name of God, one God, Elohim, but yet the names, the name, there's three names, but it's the name. So you see this one, but plural. 
just so beautiful how the scripture just kind of unpacks that. We said this at the end of 2 Corinthians, and I just want to read this to you guys. It was basically the last verse, the blessing of the people. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There is this idea of just, we need, as we know God, we seek to know God, know that God the Father, know God the Son, know God the Spirit. I, I can't wait to try to understand, unpack this more with you guys, but this eternal God who's infinite is also knowable. The unknowable God is knowable. It's just unbelievable. And God's like, you can know me through the person, the Spirit. The Spirit directs the things of the Spirit. It's just unbelievable how God tries to reveal himself, his character, his nature, his personhood to us. As best he, not as best he can, but just, he uses anthropomorphic like, like terminology. Like God uses man-like terminology to say, hey, I want you to know me. I'm a father, but I'm spirit. And God uses language that we can understand and adapt and process. And as we walk through this series of attributes of God, it's weird. Like, I heard someone ask me, like, which attributes? I'm like, I don't know yet. <laughs> it's also like, but just 13, I'm like, yeah, there's more. It's just my, my hope is that we get to know this God. Can I share one verse with you? And I'll probably share this more throughout the series. John 17, 3. Jesus says that, Father, they, they may know you. That he says basically for eternal life. He goes, what is eternal life? That they may know you. It would take eternity to get to know an eternal God. What is eternal life? Knowing God. Why does it take eternity? God is eternal. It would take eternity to get to know an eternal God. We need, we, we need, we need as much time as we can because he's eternal. Like our brains can't fathom it. It's unbelievable. This is eternal life, that they may know you. Eternal life is knowing God. Just knowing him. I want us to know him. Uh, there's a guy, Matt, Michael Reeves. He, he says this in his book, and it's so beautiful. It's on the Trinity. He says, listen, God is love because God is Trinity. A God who is in himself a community of love, who before all things could never be anything but love. And if you trust and come to know such a being, it changes absolutely everything. And I agree, it changes absolutely everything. Get to know this God. We're going to spend a few weeks just talking about how is God made known through his attributes. That's how he decided to reveal himself to us. Then ultimately the person of Jesus and through the application and person of the spirit. But God, from the very beginning, says, you want to know me? You want to know my glory? I'm good. I'm compassionate. I'm merciful. I'm long-suffering. I'm just. And God reveals himself to us through his attributes. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to explore those attributes. Cool? You ready? So today was more of an introduction, I guess. God is. There's a God. And this God is triune. Amen? Can we worship this God right now? Can I just take a second? We'll pray. Can we just worship? Can we be in awe? Can we just realize that you are Yahweh Elohim? You're the God of gods. If there's one true God, you're one God. You worship one God. And Father, there's a sense where I don't get that, and my mind surrenders to that, and I worship you, and I'm in awe of you, and I'm amazed by you. And let's just spend some time worshiping our God. So why don't you bow your head with me? Let's close our eyes and pray. Father, we just want to say um, we are limited, <laughs> and you are unlimited. <laughs> and we ask God as we just, um, as we sing, as we praise, as we do what you've asked us to do, that we would bless your holy name, the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, that, God, you'd be present among us, that this would not just be philosophical arguments for the fact that there is a God, but, God, that you are good and you are personal and you are loving and you are with us and you've given us your spirit to be with us, that we are not alone, that, God, you lead us, you guide us, you speak to us, and I just ask, God, that for for maybe doubters or skeptics or cynics that Jesus, who you are, would be considered. That the power of the resurrection would be something we would know. That we would know you and the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of suffering. God, I pray that we just come to know you in this time. That those who've been walking with you for years and years would just have a, a, a fresh revelation of who you are. That God, you remind them of, of who you are, of what you've done, of what you're doing, that your character, that your nature, that God, it would just change how we pray, it would change how we worship, it would change how we serve, it would change how we give. God, we just pray that our understanding of you 
just who you are would change our understanding of ourselves and how we relate to you. So Lord, we thank you. We just want to praise you now in your precious name. What a beautiful name it is. Amen.